Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. This episode of Reaganism is a recording of Congresswoman Liz Cheney speaking at the Reagan Institute on February 23rd, 2021. The event was titled U.S. Foreign Policy in 2021 and Beyond. The discussion features a short speech followed by Q&A, moderated by Reaganism host Roger Zakheim. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. And depending on where you're tuning in, good morning or good afternoon. I'm Roger Zakheim, director of the Reagan Institute. We are the home of the Reagan Foundation in the nation's capital. A couple of months ago, I had the honor of hosting Secretary of State Pompeo, who joined us when we came together to launch the Reagan Institute's new Center for Freedom and Democracy. Its mission is to restore President Reagan's optimistic, confident approach to promoting freedom, democracy, and human dignity, both at home and abroad. Today, we're pleased to welcome to the Reagan Institute, one of the strongest advocates for such a foreign policy and a member of our center's Westminster 2.0 working group, the chair of the House Republican Conference, Representative Liz Cheney. In a profile of her published in November, one of Congresswoman Cheney's colleagues was quoted as saying, she kind of reminds you of Margaret Thatcher. Here at the Reagan Institute, that's extraordinarily high praise. And if these past few months have proven anything, it's that Congresswoman Cheney certainly has the resolve, fortitude, and conviction of a 21st century Iron Lady. Now, as I mentioned, when Senator Cotton took the same stage last week, in 2021, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of our 40th president's inaugural year. During this 40 at 40 year-long celebration, we're commemorating major events from the Reagan presidency in 1981. This week, we're marking President Reagan's first state dinner, where as it happens, he hosted British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Now, I wish we could claim we planned it all the way, but Congressman Cheney was originally scheduled to join us in November, so we're not quite as clever as we look. Now, in the, host, in the toast that evening, President Reagan said, quote, in these days, the survival of our nations and the peace of the world are threatened by forces which are willing to exact any pressure, test any will, and destroy any freedom. Survival in this era requires us, as those who preceded us, to take freedom in the palm of our hands and never to cower behind a veil of unrealistic optimism. We shall learn from those who spoke of the need for vigilance, even when speaking out was not popular." End quote. Congresswoman Cheney is known for the same clear-eyed approach to foreign policy. She can be counted on to speak out even when it is not popular. As a former State Department official, she understands the realities of diplomacy and foreign affairs like few of her colleagues. So today, we are honored to welcome her as she offers her thoughts on building a 21st century foreign policy. No doubt, her remarks will echo the need for the same timeless principles 
and defense of freedom today that President Reagan evoked that February evening 40 years ago. Ladies and gentlemen, Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming. Well, thank you very much, Roger. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, thanks so much to the Reagan Institute for hosting me today. Uh, it, it's a particular honor to uh, be able to discuss the challenges that we face uh, uh, to do it here at the Institute that's named for uh, one of our greatest Republican presidents. So, so thank you very much for that. Uh, and, and following on, uh, laying things out in terms of uh, Ronald Reagan's view of the world and, and Ronald Reagan quotes, um, there's one uh, that was part of a speech that he gave in 1983, um, talking about defense spending. And, and he described then uh, the duty and the choice facing all of us as stewards of liberty. He said, it is up to us in our time to choose and choose wisely between the hard but necessary task of preserving peace and freedom and the temptation to ignore our duty and blindly hope for the best while the enemies of freedom grow stronger day by day. That's the choice for each generation and it is certainly a choice we must make today. Uh, from China to Russia to Iran to North Korea, America's adversaries are on the march and the world is confronting a global pandemic that's taken the lives of two and a half million people, including 500,000 Americans. Though the threats that we face have changed and grown in complexity in many ways since Reagan's time, uh, I would say that there are some fundamental truths that must guide us as a nation in defending ourselves, uh, our allies and our interests. The first of these is that America is the exceptional nation. We've guaranteed freedom, security and peace for more people across the globe than has any other nation in all of history. There is no other like us and there never has been. No other nation, international body or community of nations can do what America has done. We have led the world because it is right, because it is necessary and because our security, our prosperity and our freedom depend upon it. This duty comes at a tremendous cost but the cost of inaction is much higher. Imagine a world where the rules are set not by America and the allies of freedom, but instead by Russia, Iran, or China. Imagine a world ruled by the Chinese Communist Party's surveillance state technology. Imagine a Europe controlled by Putin, free nations enslaved. Imagine a world where Islamic terrorists expand their safe havens and spread their ideology unchallenged across the globe. Some in both parties today choose to ignore these threats or to blame America. They suggest that if America would simply retreat, the threats would diminish. Such an assertion requires a willful disregard of history and of truth. And these ideas are just as dangerous today as they were in 1940 when isolationists launched the America First movement to appease Hitler and prevent America from aiding Britain in the fight against the Nazis. Isolationism was wrong and dangerous then, and it is wrong and dangerous now. As we confront the challenges facing our nation, we must remember another fundamental truth, and that is that weakness is provocative. Reagan understood, quote, war comes not when the forces of freedom are strong, it is when they are weak that tyrants are tempted. Preserving peace and freedom requires that our adversaries and our allies know we have the will and the means to defend ourselves and our interests. This means we must fund defense of the nation 
and we must do so at levels sufficient to maintain or regain our superiority. A flat or reduced defense budget will force our military to make unwise, inefficient, and risky cuts, even as the threats that we face grow. While America falls behind, Russia and China will continue pouring funds into their military buildup and their modernization efforts. We have already seen reports that President Biden is considering cuts to nuclear modernization, despite the reality that China's nuclear weapons stockpile may quadruple over the next decade, and Russia is aggressively modernizing each leg of its triad. Every year that we delay modernizing our nuclear triad, U.S. deterrence grows less and less effective, flexible, and credible. Our triad is decades old. Investments in modernization, which make up a small fraction of the DOD budget, are integral to our nation's security. America and her allies simply cannot afford further cuts or delays to our aging warheads and delivery systems, including and especially to the land-based leg of our triad. Any such cuts would amount to unilateral disarmament. Similarly, adopting any policy that restricts the United States' ability to defend ourselves, such as the no first use policy with respect to our nuclear forces, severely undermines our deterrent and makes the world far more dangerous. Multiple successive STRATCOM commanders and secretaries of defense from both political parties have urged against the adoption of such a policy. Our allies have opposed a no first use policy in part because it would cripple America's nuclear umbrella. This nuclear umbrella has upheld peace and security for decades. The United States should never adopt policies that restrain our exercise of power while our adversaries do the opposite. Nor should we ever adopt policies of appeasement. Some of the opening moves of the Biden administration with respect to Iran, China, and Russia suggests that they haven't fully learned this lesson. The Iranian nuclear deal remains the single worst agreement the United States has ever entered into. We were right to withdraw and turn to a policy of maximum pressure with sanctions against the regime. Any effort by the Biden administration to return to the deal would be a mistake and would signal to Iran that nuclear blackmail is effective. A return to this deal would also put Israel America's strongest ally in the Middle East under increased threat. A strong US-Israel relationship is at the heart of our security across the Middle East, and it is a prerequisite for our security. America must always stand unequivocally against efforts to delegitimize the state of Israel. We must oppose the anti-Semitic BDS movement. We must not tolerate anti-Semitism or Holocaust denial in any form or forum. Words matter. We must never forget, and our actions must always demonstrate our commitment to the state of Israel. One of our great strengths as a nation is our energy independence, both domestically and with respect to our national security. The executive orders issued in President Biden's first days in office banning new oil and gas leasing on federal lands are deeply misguided, and they threaten to turn back the clock to the days when we were dependent on foreign sources of energy. Though we face new challenges and threats, including the threat of growing uh, security risks from Russia and China, we must continue to defend our nation from radical Islamic terrorism. This means we must have sufficient forces deployed 
in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, to conduct counterintelligence and counterterrorism operations and deny terrorist safe havens from which they could launch attacks against the United States. Decisions about troop levels must always be made based on conditions on the ground. Political timetables set in Washington are dangerous and irresponsible. Working with NATO, we must also hold Russia to account. Instead of extending the New START Treaty for five years, as Putin wanted, the Biden administration should have insisted on a renegotiated treaty that included China and expanded the scope of weapon systems it covered. The Biden administration should impose sanctions against the Kremlin for Russia's use of chemical weapons against Alexei Navalny and its perpetration of the solar winds hack. Putin has demonstrated a determination to dominate Europe and weaken NATO, and we must not let that happen. We must fully enforce the sanctions against the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and stand with our allies in Europe to sanction Russian officials who perpetuate Putin's regime of tyranny and abuse. One of the greatest threats our nation faces today is the Chinese Communist Party. The CCP is conducting multiple offensive campaigns against the United States across nearly every domain, from space to cyberspace to commercial, industrial, military. Last year, in the wake of the global pandemic unleashed from China, the House Republicans produced a task force report focused on what we must do to stop China and defend ourselves. Two thirds of the proposals of the report are bipartisan. An important first step for the Biden administration would be to adopt many of the report's proposals to begin to defend our supply chains, our data, our interests, our allies, and our own security. We should come together in a bipartisan fashion to be clear-eyed in confronting the threat China poses. And we must recognize their determination to dominate the globe with their surveillance state technology. We will not let that happen. Our strength in the United States comes from our power. It also comes from the power of our ideas and our ideals, the power of our freedom. And this brings me to January 6th. In his first inaugural address, Ronald Reagan said this, the orderly transfer of authority as called for in the constitution routinely takes place as it has for almost two centuries. And few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four year ceremony that we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle. What we saw firsthand on January 6th was a threat to this system, a threat and the fragility of our system. I've worked in my career in many countries around the world where they do not have peaceful transfers of power, where violence determines who rules. That almost happened here in the United States on January 6th. Five people died, hundreds were injured. What happened on that day must never happen again and we must not look away or trivialize it. The security of our nation, the defense of our freedom, and America's ability to continue to lead the world all demand that those of us who are elected and appointed officials conduct ourselves in ways that are worthy of the sacrifice so many have made in generations past for our freedom. The freedom that others have fought and died for 
must not be squandered. Attacks on it, such as the one we saw on January 6th, must not be minimized. The freedom that we all defend belongs not to us. It belongs to our children and our grandchildren. To them, we owe fidelity to the Constitution and a duty to uphold our oath, an oath we swore under God to do everything necessary to defend it. That is, at its core, the great strength of this, the greatest nation on earth. We have guided and led the world in the triumph of freedom since World War II. Those of us who care deeply about our history and our future, who take our oaths and our obligations seriously, will steer our party and our nation into the future. We will right the unforgivable wrongs of January 6th. We will make our party worthy once again of the mantle of Lincoln and Reagan. And we will ensure that the forces of freedom prevail in the decades to come. Thank you very much, Roger, and I'd be happy to take questions. Congressman Cheney, thank you so much for those uh, comprehensive set of remarks. Um, I'll have a, a bunch of questions, conversation with you for uh, next 10, 15 minutes or so, and then we'll have some uh, questions from our viewers. Um, let's start with the new administration. Uh, you hit on uh, early concerns you have vis-a-vis -vis Iran, China, Russia, uh, some of the executive orders. Um, as you know, President Biden recently addressed the Munich Security Conference, first uh, real comprehensive set of remarks from him on foreign policy. He said, quote, America is back. So let's get together and demonstrate to our great, great grandchildren when they read about us that democracy, democracy functions and works and together there is nothing we can't do. Um, America's back seems to be that theme focusing on democracy. Do you agree with that outlook? And, and when he says America's back, what should that mean and what should that not mean? Well, look, I think it's very important um, for us, uh, as, I, as I laid out in my remarks, to recognize that America uh, you know, is the one indispensable nation, that America has to lead. Um, and that there are, there are multiple aspects to our leadership. Uh, one of them, uh, which we saw very clearly in the past administration, was a commitment to providing the resources necessary for uh, the Department of Defense and for the defense of the nation. And, and so I hope that we see uh, President Biden continue that commitment. Um, I hope we see a recognition uh, on the part of the Biden administration that fundamental to preserving the peace is uh, making sure that uh, we have the resources we need to protect ourselves from all threats, making sure our adversaries know that. Um, I do think that it's very important for us um, not to confuse American leadership in the world um, with America entering into, uh, re-entering into agreements that we know are damaging. And, and two in particular are the Paris Climate Accords and the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, I think that American leadership has to mean that we're leading uh, in, in ways that serve our interest and in ways that defend and protect security and freedom. Um, the Iranian nuclear deal certainly doesn't do either of those things. It makes the world less safe, not more safe. Um, and the Paris Climate Accord imposes costs on the United States, costs on our economy, uh, costs on uh, employment, on jobs. Uh, while not imposing any costs on countries like China, for example, 
um, and not accomplishing or moving even you know the, the ball down the field at all towards uh, whatever objectives and goals the administration has laid out with respect to climate change. So uh, I think uh, America must lead. I think that there are um, a number of instances, uh, unfortunately, that we've seen in the first few weeks of this administration that have have not matched uh, matched that rhetoric, which is unfortunate because I think it's it's crucial for our safety. And I want to get to some of those specifics you just went through, uh, Iranian nuclear deal, Paris, climate change. But one of the things that really came out from President Biden's remarks is this uh, challenge between autocracies and democracies. And he said that we're at this inflection point for democracies around the world and that you know we must demonstrate that democracies can still deliver for our people in this changed world. Uh, he said that's the, quote, galvanizing mission. Uh, you spoke a lot about freedom and, and, and democracy and America's role in leading that in the world. Do you agree with that assessment that that should be our galvanizing mission and uh, that we're at this inflection point? I, I agree with that. I think it's very important for us to recognize that um, the free nations of the world have to work together. We have to work with alliances and we have to be uh, willing to stand up and defend freedom, to stand up and defend democracy. Um, and to understand the threat that we face today, in particular from uh, autocratic regimes like uh, China and like Russia. And I know I've heard, you know, as I'm sure many on this call have, uh, you know, over the course of several years uh, from people around the world who say things like, well, gosh, you know, democracy is messy. Um, and, and it's a lot easier sometimes to deal with, with autocrats. And I do think we have to return to, um, explaining and defending and uh, building the kind of alliances that, that you all are doing with the Westminster group, um, some of the parliamentary alliances and, and uh, working groups that we, we have and that we've formed that really do remind people both of the morality of democracy and um, of the fragility of these systems, but of ultimately um, you know, the, the resilience of them and, and that, you know, ultimately it is the, the ideals of freedom that will prevail, but it won't be by accident. It'll be because those of us who, who live in free countries uh, defend that freedom, uh, both at home and abroad. And your, your remarks uh, really hit on the point that to effectively lead in the world, uh, we need to speak honestly and openly about what happened at home on January 6th. So let's delve into that for a couple of minutes. Um, you know, this talk is fundamentally focused on foreign policy, but this is a, a key thread. Uh, you've been outspoken that January 6th was an insurrection. It was assault on our democracy. Your remarks with us just now uh, re reinforce that again. Uh, you voted to impeach uh, President Trump. What is the state of our democracy at home? What do you say to uh, critics of uh, the United States that seek to uh, advanced democracy and freedom in the world uh, when they say uh, what, what you've just captured that we have this fragility in the system uh, and you know we have had this this trauma that recently took place. Well, I, I say first of all, um, on January 6th, our institutions held. Uh, it was very important that that we in the House and and our colleagues in the Senate were able to return to our chambers, were able to continue and to complete the counting of the electoral votes, um, and and not uh, allow the the violent mob to stop that or to delay it. And and so um, the institutions held. 
Um, but it also was a reminder of how close they came to not holding um, and how, you know, we, as we look at what's necessary to protect and defend our system, um, it really is incumbent upon those of us who are elected officials, it's incumbent upon those who serve, incumbent upon everybody who takes an oath of office um, and, and swears uh, to protect and defend the Constitution, um, that, that we recognize what happened on January 6th, that we commit ourselves that it must never happen again, that we recognize the, da the damage uh, that was done um, by uh, the president, uh, President Trump, saying that somehow the election was stolen, making those claims for, for months, um, and summoning the mob uh, and, and, and provoking them uh, then in the attack on the Capitol. Uh, and also, and very importantly, in refusing, uh, despite multiple requests um, from, from people to, to ask him to stop what was happening, to ask him to stop the violence, to protect the Capitol, to protect the counting of electoral votes, he didn't do so. Uh, and I think that one of the most important things that that we need to demonstrate to the world, but but you know more importantly that we need to make sure that that we do to protect our system and to protect our republic um, is is to be clear that 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 is a behavior that that is absolutely unacceptable behavior. Uh, it's dangerous. It's an existential threat to who we are, um, and it it can't be minimized or trivialized, and and it can never happen again. Yeah, and, and those were words you used in your remarks that we should not trivialize, we should not minimize, obviously, uh, by speaking out and addressing the issue like you've done today is, is one way uh, not to trivialize and not to minimize it. Is there anything else that you think we as a country ought to do, uh, the Congress ought to do, uh, the conference in which uh, you're chair of ought to do to make sure we're not trivializing or minimizing or is, or is exhausted by what we're doing here today, what you're speaking about? No, I think that there are, it's a good question, Roger. I think there are many things. I think, first of all, um, you know, certainly uh, the potential of a 9-11 style commission. Uh, I think that's very important. Uh, I think there are many aspects to what happened on the 6th and in the days, weeks and months leading up to it uh, that, that have to be investigated. And I think having a commission uh, with the, the formality uh, that we saw uh, in the 9-11 commission with the bipartisan participation that we saw in the 9-11 commission, that's very important. Um, a commission with subpoena power, uh, a commission that really is able, and, and I think it should have retired officials on it. I don't think you should have current officials on the commission. I really think the model that, that was used in, in the aftermath of 9-11 is a good one. Um, so I think that's important. I think there will be criminal investigations that, that are going on and that will be ongoing. Um, but I, but I think while those things are happening, it, it's very important for us to ignore the temptation to look away. Um, and, and it's very important, especially for us as Republicans, um, to make clear that um, we, we aren't the party of, um, of white supremacy. You certainly saw um, uh, anti-Semitism. You saw the symbols of uh, Holocaust denial, for example, uh, at the Capitol that day, you saw a Confederate flag being carried through the rotunda. Um, and I think we as Republicans in particular have a duty and an obligation um, to stand against that, to stand against insurrection. Uh, and, and to be clear that for us to fight 
you know, what, what Margaret Thatcher called very aptly the quicksand of socialism, which we are facing from the left. For us to fight that effectively, uh, the Constitution has got to be our shield. And, and we have to um, defend the Constitution uh, because we know that, frankly, there are too many uh, on the other side who won't. Uh, and because that, that's our best and most effective tool to stand against the infringements on First Amendment rights and Second Amendment rights and the massive expansion uh, of the role of the federal government uh, in our lives. And, and um, if we don't uphold the Constitution, uh, we, we you know, cannot defend against the real threat that we're facing from the left either. I'm going to move on in a moment to uh, kind of other subjects within the foreign policy discussion, but one more on what you've just addressed in response to January 6th. Uh, you mentioned a, a 9-11-like commission and uh, with emphasis on it being bipartisan or having those bipartisan features. Um, are you optimistic that something like that will go through Congress and, and, and be adopted? Uh, is that something underway uh, or not as mature quite yet? I, I hope that it will be. I know that there are discussions underway. I think you've seen some of the initial proposals um, that have come out from Speaker Pelosi. Um, you know, I think her initial proposal, which is to have a 7-4 Democrat-Republican split is, is unacceptable. Um, I think it's very important. We, you know, we're facing in many ways a crisis of confidence in our institutions um, and in our electoral process. And I think that um, the 9-11 type commission could play a very important role in helping um, citizens across the country understand and recognize what happened. Um, but it needs to really be bipartisan and really be you know, uh, populated with serious individuals who will take a, a clear-eyed look at what went on. And, and I think that that also has to include um, what went on uh, in terms of questioning the outcome of the election and um, the extent to which, um, you know, there really was uh, the president and many around him pushed this idea that the election had been stolen. And, and that is a dangerous claim. Uh, it wasn't true. Uh, there were, you know, over uh, 60 court cases where uh, judges, including judges appointed by President Trump and other Republican presidents, looked at the evidence uh, in many cases uh, and, and said there is not widespread fraud uh, and wouldn't grant the relief that the uh, Trump campaign was seeking. So the idea that we in Congress were going to step in and somehow overturn the results of the election on January 6th was never true, was unconstitutional, was wrong. And, and I think that um, for facing the facts about what happened in the election, I hope that's something that can come partly from the 9-11 Commission. I think our media plays a huge role in that. Uh, I think that you know uh, any media organization that was perpetuating the notion continues to perpetuate the notion that the, the election was fraudulent or was stolen. Um, is contributing to a very dangerous set of circumstances. Um, and, uh, and I think we, the American people need to know the truth about what happened. So let, let's go back uh, deeper into the Trump administration uh, prior to January 6th. And um, there were a number of issues uh, on foreign policy where you uh, supported the Trump administration and others where you were less supportive. You hit on a couple of them uh, today, um, defense spending, for example. but. What would you say we've learned over the four years of Trump presidency in terms of foreign policy? And 
Uh, most importantly, what, what what should stay? Well, I think I think you put, you've pointed to one of the most important pieces, and that that was uh, the the commitment, the dedication to providing resources necessary um, to help our military dig out of the hole, help the Defense Department dig out of the hole that that we were in after eight years of the Obama administration. Uh, I I think also providing resources in particular for nuclear modernization uh, was very important. Um, I think the decision, uh, for example, to um, pull out of the INF treaty uh, was important. I think um, looking at and recognizing the threat that China poses um, and being willing to address that threat. Um, I think you can point to, to um, a lot of, of things that happened during the Trump administration on national security policy. Um, that were good and beneficial for the country. Um, and, and I would hope that, that many of those won't just be rejected by the Biden administration um, you know, for partisan reasons. Um, I think that, that it's very important that we're now moving towards um, a reinvigorated relationship with NATO. Uh, I think NATO is the, the single most effective and successful uh, alliance probably in history. Uh, and it's one that that we we need to ensure that that we are um, strongly and 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 proudly part of um, as as we work to confront the threats to freedom and the challenges posed particularly by uh, by Putin. So uh, let, let's drill down on one of those uh, uh, generally supportive of the of Trump administration China policy. You reference uh, the House uh, Republican China Task Force. Uh, President Biden. Um, came out and has uh, kind of departed in some ways from certainly the rhetoric and approach of the previous administration when it comes to China. Specifically, he said at uh, the Munich Security Conference, it is not a Cold War. Um, and uh, you know there are many who would say that it's not, that's an imperfect analogy, but he went on to say, he said, competition must not lock out cooperation on issues that affect us all. So this notion that there has to be areas of cooperation when it comes to China, um, you specifically spoken to climate change is one that concerns you. Uh, of course, uh, you have other areas. Uh, COVID is one that uh, President Biden has emphasized areas of cooperation. Um, is this one of those uh, places that you think we should, ought to focus more on the competition than the cooperation? And is that balance something you worry about? I think that the threat that China poses is is so serious and so complex that it it, it is often um, you know the desire of policymakers to sort of you know look away from it or or not not grapple with the complexity of it um, because you know I think um, what I would like to hear President Biden acknowledge is that uh, people on both sides of the aisle got China wrong uh, for you know 20 years, and um, uh, believed that if we encouraged them to open up economically, that they would open up politically. And instead, we saw the rise of the surveillance state, and and the Chinese Communist Party has absolutely no desire or inclination or willingness to allow any sort of um, political openness or responsible participation in, uh, in, in world affairs. And, and I think that COVID should have, um, you know, sort of uh, pulled away uh, the, uh, 
you know, misguided views that anybody had that they were going to be a responsible player on the world stage. Um, they they have got uh, very clear designs on on global domination, and in their view, that requires um, that the United States be defeated. So I think we have an obligation to to look back and to understand and recognize what went wrong with our policies previously and to understand that we've got to work with allies um, to directly confront the threat that China poses. Uh, you know, each and every day, uh, the Chinese Communist Party across multiple um, uh, domains is attacking uh, the United States, attacking American citizens, stealing data, um, attempting to, and, and we know that they have engaged in, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of attacks in cyberspace, attempting to and, and effectively militarizing space, making very clear strides with respect to uh, hypersonic weapons and other weapon systems. Um, they, it, it is a very dangerous, um, a dangerous set of circumstances. And, um, you know, the, the rhetoric about we need to cooperate and compete, um, you know, I, I want to see what's behind that. I did not, I, you know, if you look during the campaign at what uh, then Vice President Biden said about China, uh, he did not seem to have a very clear understanding of the, the nature of the threat or the gravity of the threat. And I would oh. hope now that he has got access to the intelligence briefings and is spending more time focused on it, he might might come to understand that. But it is a, it's a very serious threat. Um, they're not an ally, certainly. So you've emphasized a couple of uh, features of the previous administration's national security strategy and national defense strategy, um, specifically the role of allies. Uh, also, uh, nuclear weapons, that was in your remarks. You just hit on it as well. Let's start with the allies piece. And you know, Wyoming, I know there's uh, a, a lot of energy focus and consideration. You hit on the executive orders that concern you. You know, the Keystone cancellation, you've been critical of that, uh, not only for parochial uh, you know, Wyoming concerns uh, or energy policy, but also for the impact of on alliances and, and Canada. Take us through that kind of line of argument, because perhaps it's not intuitive for everybody that that is actually something that our ally Canada cares deeply about uh, and is relevant in this geopolitical uh, consideration. It's, it's very important. And I think if you look at um, all of the executive orders on, on energy policy that we've seen from the Biden administration, they, they've been damaging. And in some instances, because of the impact that they have on jobs and on our, our local communities, uh, and for us in Wyoming, it's particularly the, the leasing on uh, federal lands, um, you know, they, they are in some ways heartless. Uh, if you look at the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline and the jobs lost because of that cancellation and the, um, the, the impact, the benefit of the cancellation, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the administration thought that they would achieve through that cancellation. Um, they certainly it does not have any benefit uh, in terms of actually you know, moving um, fossil fuels. Uh, and I think that, that, as you point out, the challenge that we face now because of the commitments that have been made to Canada, um, they're very real ones. I would also point out that you know, if you look at um, the development of fossil fuels, whether you're talking about coal, oil, natural gas, um, you know, we have the cleanest burning coal in the world. We produce the cleanest burning coal in the world. Um, things like uh, directional drilling uh, for uh, oil uh, development, 
um, the, there are technologies that we've been able to develop across the board in terms of clean coal technologies, carbon capture technologies, um, directional drilling and fracking, um, which uh, have allowed us to become energy independent and also have allowed us to make great strides in terms of um, uh, clean energy. And, and I think that part of what's been lost here is, is there's a huge focus on let's check all the boxes on Green New Deal elements. Um, you know, people are failing to understand and recognize that, that we actually know how much we need to depend upon our fossil fuels because they are reliable, because they are affordable baseload power. Um, you know, when you are dealing with frozen wind turbines in, in Texas, for example, that, that certainly brings the point home. Um, but we know how to access our fossil fuels, how to develop them, in ways that that uh, involve responsible stewardship of the environment, and those are the things that that reality, um, not to mention the resources that a state like mine needs um, from those leases on federal lands, that funds our schools, and 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 it's really um, the ramifications of these policies are negative across the board from economic, employment, national security. Um, they're really misguided, and uh, and I, you know, we will fight against them uh, vigorously, and and I would hope the administration would reconsider. You're talking about some state needs, and makes me think of the COVID relief package making its way through the Congress. Um, you emphasized in your remarks the importance of national defense, uh, the measure of um, a nation's commitment uh, to freedom to its sovereignty really is its investment defense. You, you, you've said that and, and, and advocate for that in your entire time in the Congress. Take us through how a $1.9 trillion COVID bill, that's what's pending before the Congress, if adopted, it would be a total of about $3 trillion to COVID relief, actually impacts the full kind of budget discussion that you and other members of Congress uh, will address when the normal budget, the discretionary budget, uh, comes to the Congress uh, later this year. Well, it's it's an important point, Roger. I, I would say first of all, this 1.9 trillion dollar package um, is is really um, it's going to be harmful. Uh, it's going to be harmful because of the potential impact overall on on fiscal stability. Um, it isn't targeted on uh, people who have the greatest need. It's not temporary. It's not focused on COVID relief. As you pointed out, it includes a, a tremendous number of, of um, democratic long-term policy priorities um, that will make it harder, not easier, for us to recover uh, from the economic challenge we're facing. And, and it's really too bad because there are a number of areas where we would have bipartisan agreement. I think um, the PPP program uh, has been tremendously successful and people support that across the board. Uh, additional resources for vaccine distribution is another area where I think you could have had bipartisan agreement. Um, there were good efforts underway by the Problem Solvers Caucus and the House and others to say, let's let's find some things that we know we need, not to mention the fact that we have a trillion dollars from the previous package that we haven't spent yet. Um, and and let's, let's focus on how do we make sure that people get the relief they need, um, but not um, take us down the path of um, doing significant damage to 
uh, you know, our long-term debt uh, and to potentially, uh, you know, the, the potential negative uh, inflationary consequences of the size of this package. Um, and so, so overall, um, it, it's, it's a package that is irresponsible um, and, and could have been bipartisan. And I'm sorry that the Democrats chose not to do that. Um, in terms of spending, you're exactly right. You know, we're going to come back around again and we, we see even more downward pressure on the budget overall um, because of COVID. There's certainly been significant uh, costs um, as a result of COVID that the Department of Defense um, has absorbed. And um, when we begin having the negotiations uh, over what our spending is going to look like for the next couple of years, um, I would anticipate that the Democrats may well just try to pretend this $1.9 trillion package didn't happen. Um, and, and once again, look at the defense budget as a way to, to deal with the debt. Uh, and I um, always, you know, uh, hearken back to Senator Mike Enzi when uh, he, uh, before he retired. Uh, Former Senator Wyoming. Right, exactly. Um, who you know talked about the percentage of the budget every year that Congress is really arguing about and debating about? It's you know, twenty six percent, maybe twenty seven percent, and so the idea that you're going to really be able to effectively address the debt by cutting into the defense budget, um, you know, is dangerous. And and I'm sure that that debate will come up again, and I'm sure that it'll be coupled with um, demands for increased domestic spending not based on need, but based on sort of this dollar for dollar formula that that, uh, that the Budget Control Act has required of us. Um, we only have a, a few minutes left. Uh, I'm gonna go to one question from the audience. And then if uh, I wanna get to actually uh, focus on items other than China. Um, so this comes from um, a general audience question asked with so much partisanship between and decisiveness within uh, the Republican Democrats, what are the common policies that give America a united approach to foreign policy? Um, and then it questions whether US and China actually offers a, a real bipartisan issue right now. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, exactly right. Um, you know, I think before COVID, um, you certainly did have a bipartisan agreement um, growing in the House, and I would imagine in the Senate as well, about the threat that China poses. Uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, what happened uh, over the course of the last year, uh, and, and the China Task Force is a perfect example of this, where, you know, we really tried to work with the Democrats, tried to work with Speaker Pelosi to make this a bipartisan task force, and, and ultimately she, she wouldn't do that. Um, but any of these national security issues, as well as COVID, um, you know, ultimately the solutions have got to be bipartisan solutions. The debt is a perfect example of that. Ultimately, if we are going to, to do what is necessary and responsible and address the debt, um, we've got to be willing to do it on a bipartisan basis. Um, and so I think, as I said, you know, we've got some really good groups in the House. Um, the Problem Solvers Caucus is one of them. Gets 28 Republicans and 28 Democrats that work on these issues, and and I, I think an understanding and a recognition, we've got to find ways to to try to put aside some of the the vitriol, um, and and work for bipartisan solutions where where they those are available. 
All right, a couple last questions, then we'll have to wrap up. Um, for about 12 years, we've had presidents uh, argue against so-called endless wars, forever wars. Uh, President Obama uh, advocated ending wars abroad, rebuilding at home. Uh, President Trump uh, had his own version uh, with the endless wars. Um, right now, we had President Biden recently say with respect to Afghanistan that we remain committed to ensuring that Afghanistan never again provides a base for terrorist attacks against the United States and our partners and our interests. Um, yet there are reports that, their that the administration, the Biden administration that is, is weighing the Afghanistan policy and perhaps not maintaining the true presence that you and your remarks uh, argued is essential. Um, where do you think we're going to land and uh, what can be done? Uh, you hit on Afghanistan, Iraq, and I guess Syria all get thrown into this language of endless or forever wars. Yeah, I think that it is uh, irresponsible to, to use phrases like endless war. Uh, that is not a description that is accurate about what's happening in a place like Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria. Um, and I think that that we have to take responsibility for being honest with the American people about what is happening. And that is that um, in order for us to be able to defend ourselves, in order for us to be able to ensure that terrorists can't establish safe havens um, from which they could attack us again, we've got to have sufficient resources, whether it's for the counterintelligence uh, mission, in some cases, a counterterrorism mission, sufficient resources to work with um, you know, local entities uh, and and be able to deny those deny deny safe havens to terrorists. So, if we get to a, a place where um, you know the commanders on the ground uh, say you know that we can reduce our troop levels or the conditions on the ground suggest that we could, um, th then I think that you know that th those are decisions that that have got to be made based on those kinds of criteria. Uh, I think that in Afghanistan, the notion, and I've been publicly opposed to the this idea that there's a, a negotiated peace that we can reach with the Taliban. Uh, that's just simply not the case. The idea that we would base any of our uh, deployment decisions on, um, you know, purported words from members of the Taliban uh, is is uh, highly irresponsible. And you know, again, we have to make the decision. Does our security require, does our ability to prevent uh, the spread of Al-Qaeda uh, or ISIS or other terrorist organizations, does that require us to have troops deployed um, if our security requires that we need to do it? And um, acting as though we're, we're gonna have a negotiated settlement um, in Afghanistan with Taliban is, is uh, just simply, it's not the case and it, it's, playing games with American security we shouldn't be playing. Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, we'll have to leave it there. So much more I'd love to get into, but we'll have to wait for another time. Thank you so much for joining us once again at the Reagan Institute. Thank you, Roger. Always great to be with you all.